Shelley Griffith, and today I'm very delighted to have a longtime friend with me. We're going to talk about his career, and since this is Veterans Day approaching, we're going to talk about his military career as well. And uh, my guest today is Marvin Bollinger. Welcome, Marvin. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Good to see you. Glad to have you here and to visit. Always good to see you. Let's start out like we normally do with guests, and and our listeners are pretty familiar with this. Kind of give us background of of where you were born, raised, uh, early family, and and some of that information with your early education. Well, I was uh, raised on a small farm just outside of the Follett in Campbell County. Uh, I'm a farm boy. Uh, went to school there in La Follette, uh, and then left there and went to East Tennessee State University for my uh, education. And back in those days, uh, this was 1960s, ROTC was required. So when I arrived at East Tennessee State, I was told on Thursdays, you're part of ROTC. (laughs) And I got my uniform, and every Thursday I would I was introduced to Brasso and shining all that brass and all, and uh, we'd wear the uniform. Uh, I came from a very poor family, being on a small farm. I learned that if you took ROTC in your junior and senior year, they would pay you a small supplement. So I needed the money. I was already working a a second job in Johnson City. So I signed up for ROTC, not really thinking ahead as far as what happens in two years when you graduate, Vietnam is going on and you're gonna be a second lieutenant. And they were in demand at that time. What year was that, Marvin? I graduated in 1969. So, so in 67, or excuse me, 68 and 69, well actually 67, 68, I was part of, uh, I was commissioned in the, in, the, in the summer of 1969. All right. And the Army? In the Army. Army, and I was an infantry second lieutenant. Okay. And like I said, infantry second lieutenants were in high demand mm-hmm. in Vietnam because the longevity was not that great. Yeah. And what we're going to do, folks, we're going to segue a little bit. Normally I would continue this with Marvin, but we're going to step back. <clears throat> just a little bit, and I want him to share his, his uh, wonderful career uh, with you all in, uh, in the business world, in the leadership role in city government. Then we're going to segue back to his military experience and some of those things that are unbelievable uh, stories that he and I have shared in the past. So take us now, Marvin, your, your major in college and getting into government-type service? Well, I majored in business, and got my degree in business, and as I said, commissioned a second lieutenant. So immediately following college, I entered the military. Uh, spent uh, two years, including a tour in Vietnam, came back, and I decided to get out of the military at that point, and went back to the university and got my master's degree in city management. Uh, that's how I was introduced to Athens. Uh, in, in June of 1973, I came to Athens to work uh, for the city of Athens, and uh, I served uh, here and through 1993. So I was here 20 years. 
Uh, I left Athens in 1993 and became city manager in Fredericksburg, Virginia for a period of 10 years. And then in 2003, I decided to retire from city management and uh, got a telephone call from this large real estate developer who's a family-owned business and asked me to consider coming to work for them as their chief operating officer. And as I told them, I don't know a lot about real estate. And they said, well, we know real estate. We need management. So I went to work for them. One of my first assignments was to go to Boca Raton, Florida, and open an office, uh, staff the office, etc. And uh, so I went home that evening there in Fredericksburg and told Kathy that uh, my wife that, uh, you know, some people spend a fortune retiring in Boca Raton, Florida. They're going to pay us to live in Boca and, of course, continue to work there. So for the next 18 years or so, I was served as a chief operating officer for the Silver Companies, which is a real estate development and, and, and equity provider to uh, uh, developers. We built hotels, shopping centers, you know, uh, assisted living facilities. You know, we, we kind of uh, skated to where the money was in terms of what's going on in the real estate world at that point. And from there, you finally retire. Yes. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, my wife uh, contracted ALS, and, uh, and I lost her in 2018. And to be honest, after that, I really, really did not have the desire to continue to work that much. Uh, we had uh, taken time off to help take care of her uh, leading up to her death, but after that I decided uh, that I did not want to work anymore. Kathy and I was married 50 years in one day. Uh, we have a daughter, Beth, who lives in Ames, Iowa. Her, her husband's a professor at Iowa State. Beth teaches first grade just like her mother did. Uh, she's coming up on like 28 years, I think. And son Jason is still playing with music and that kind of thing in Nashville. So he's in nearby Nashville. I moved back to East Tennessee in 2021. And we're glad to have you back in this area. And certainly uh, having spent two years of my life in the military in South Florida, I was glad to get back to this area as well. So, But yeah, and there may be a time when I'll call Jason and see if he will let me come and play harmonica over there? Do you think you would, or is it is it that kind of a thing? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've tried to go to the clubs and all where he is, and I just don't understand. I, I'm still stuck in the 60s with the soul music, and, and I don't understand a lot of the music that they do today. Well, me either, and, and uh, with the kids, and, and our children folks are in that same age range, and, and I don't either still to this day. Now, in government service, uh, and you and I uh, shared volunteerism with Kiwanis and different things. Take our listeners through, because I've not really had anybody on the program yet that's been in uh, you know, city management. And I think they would be interested, Marvin, in knowing the approaches, I guess, that one takes uh, to managing a city. And folks, uh, Athens, Tennessee, we're looking, I guess, 13,000 now. And, a little bit less maybe when Marvin was here and the county's about 50-something thousand, but take them through the steps of your job in a day of what you manage to keep a city working. Well, there, there are different forms of government you find in a city. Some have a strong mayor, part-time mayor, and for some communities that works. Others have a city administrator who basically does, uh, executes the duties given to him by the city council. 
and then you have the council manager form, which is what we had here in Athens and, and likewise in, in Virginia, where the mayor and the council sit as a board of directors, not unlike that of a bank. The bank has a president that operates the bank on day to day, where the board of directors uh, provides the policy and st strategy going forward. And, and in city government under the council manager form, that's basically the approach. The city manager under that form uh, employs the police chief, the fire chief, et cetera, et cetera, all the various departments. Uh, you, 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 know, you, you produce the budgets for the city, you develop plans for the city, you present them to the city council for, for approval. And uh, so in, in that form of go government, it's generally considered to be the more professional where you have a trained individual that is there. Uh, you know, city government's big business. And, and there are a lot of good people that serve on councils, some of whom have experience in business, some don't. And when you're talking about multi-million dollar budgets, you really need someone there that has some degree of acumen uh, in, terms of, in terms of managing that money in the best interest of the city, of the citizens. So that, that's kind of the approach. Uh, Every day is different. Every day is a challenge, and, and, and it's a very, very fun career. Well, and I remember, too, Marvin, how, how good you have been uh, over your career at grant writing. And, and folks, if you don't understand some of this, like Marvin's saying, grants coming in for projects and other expenses are extremely important. And, and you developed that along the way, or you had people train you to do that, or what? Well, when, in, when I was getting my master's degree, we did do some work there. Uh, you know, grant writing is important, particularly receiving grants is very important, particularly for smaller communities. Now, they're big; they're, they're important for big cities too, but more so, I think, for the smaller, because you don't have the resources at the local level to, for example, start an adult uh, handicap center to... Uh, start at work with your senior citizens to work uh, with food banks and uh, homeless homeless shelters and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we we here in Athens, for example, are located on I seventy five. So you've got travelers out there, uh, some of who need travelers aid. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, small communities up and down interstates normally cannot provide that kind of thing. So you've got to develop policies and and ways to. Uh, to help them along the way. And then at the same time, you write grants to bring in or build a huge recreational park or develop uh, other other amenities for the better use of your leisure time within a community. Uh, we develop grants for educating our kids and bringing money in to help provide resources within the schools. And what I discovered many years ago is, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, how many grants are out there, if you will, that a lot of people don't know and go after and then say, well, boy, I wish I had known that to help me with that project. Uh, and as an aside, I just joined uh, folks, the Tri-County Center uh, here in McMahon County on their board. And this was an extremely important project that Marvin uh, got started years ago when he was here, still functioning very, very well. Uh, for disadvantaged 
uh, adults, and it's just uh, it's a marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, mission. Sammy Rogers. I give Sammy Rogers a lot of credit for uh, yeah. for you know helping identify the need and bringing the opportunity to help oh. create something like that. Oh, I was. And we had these local industries here who, quite frankly, were throwing away bits and pieces and parts and all that, and and they could bring, they could sweep them up, put them in a box, bring them to the shelter, and these these handicapped individuals or disabled kids could help pick them out, and so it, it, it gave them a purpose as well. So yeah. it was a, it was a win win for everyone. No, I'm excited to be serving in a small capacity on that board, but I thought about that yesterday as we had a a meeting. Now. And share with our listeners, because those who are involved in, say, going to council meetings or meeting with, with government officials, share a little bit maybe about ways that we as citizens can be better stewards of our community, if I'm putting it correctly, instead of sitting back and always <laughs> coming up with critical uh, comments about those who serve. Uh, you and I have served on so many boards uh, at mm-hmm. different levels, but share with them how you, uh, as as Marvin Bollinger first, and then city manager, would suggest to people to become engaged in their community in a better positive sense. Yeah, get involved, stay educated. Uh, so often people are single issue. Uh, I've got a pothole in front of my house. Fix my pothole. And you know the rest of the city that day doesn't count. I mean, I mean, it does not does not uh, mean mean anything to them, and that's pretty minor in the overall uh, spectrum of issues in the city. Uh, unfortunately, uh, several council members that serve are single issue members. They had a problem with the city. They became upset to the point where they run for election. And so long as we get that one thing done, you know, let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would suggest, you know, staying involved. And, and uh, you know, I know uh, I've heard a thousand times, I pay your salary. You're right, you do. You do as a citizen. You pay the, the employees of the city uh, their salary. But, you know, your problem means as much to that city employee as it does to you. You've just had more time to think about it. And, uh, you know, don't beat up on the employee. Stay involved and and. You know, they'll get to uh, uh, helping you solve your problem if it's solve- solvable. Some are not. No, that's excellent advice, being involved. In, and, folks, I will echo what Marvin's saying. is, I've been blessed to be involved in a number of things since I've been back in Athens 46 years, but it's very difficult sometimes to follow his advice because people would rather be on the sidelines and do the Monday morning quarterbacking. So I urge you the same way Marvin has getting involved, but stay educated and focus on the big picture. Now, as you uh, went through your career with the other places, they were bigger than Athens. Mm-hmm. Did you find that the, the, I guess the problems are similar? It's just at a different level, a bigger level as far as uh, taking care of a community? Or was there a lot of difference in how you sat in that role? Uh, They're very similar. Uh, You know, providing police protection, fire protection, uh, providing the the, uh, community services is very similar. In the case of Fredericksburg, very congested, part of northern Virginia, a suburb of northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. 
people are worn out from commuting back and forth to Washington every day. Some of them spend as much as two or three hours each way every day. So, you know, they're tired and by the time they get home and realize that one of their services has been interrupted for whatever reason. And uh, so, you know, you get some of that frustration uh, that's leveled, but generally speaking, they're pretty much the same. Here in Athens, we did a lot more work with economic development. Uh, we had land to develop. We had room for industries. We had employees that needed jobs. We needed we had employees who, who, who uh, these new jobs provided them a chance to for upward mobility. Uh, in 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 Northern Virginia, it's generally about the federal government and all those Beltway bandits that chase the federal dollars uh, that that you're working for. And more and more people move out just a little further each year uh, because of all that congestion and they can have a little more land rather than just an apartment or, or they have a larger apartment or a larger house that kind of thing so so there's some good that goes with commuting there's some bad that goes with it I know son-in-law Scott was in the Secret Service for 25 years and many of his years were spent in, in a DC office in a car yeah. back and forth like you say to Virginia or Maryland whatever side you're on one of the things I enjoyed in Fredericksburg is working, uh, we created the Virginia Rail Express, which uh, was a commuter, commuter trains from the south to D.C. You know, as kids, you get to play with trains. Mm -hmm. Train uh, Here we got to play with CSX, negotiating contracts and that kind of thing, and, and building trains and adding trains and serving the public, you know. So that was kind of fun. Wow. Yeah, that's, that would be a total different animal I could see. Now, let's segue now in your pre-career military service, since we are coming upon Veterans Day. <clears throat> and as you finished, like you were saying, and you got commissioned, mm -hmm. what was the time frame, Marvin, from uh, that uh, commissioning until you actually had to go in country? What was your time frame? From the day that I graduated from college and got commissioned in one year I was in Vietnam I'd gone to Fort Benning Georgia for officer basic I'd been uh, sent out to Fort Hood Texas for a short period of time uh, working with the you know, first armor division and then got my orders for Vietnam en route to Vietnam I went to Panama to Fort Sherman went through jungle expert school and three weeks of orientation, you know, just acclimation, that kind of thing, to the heat and all that. And learning how to survive on the land, uh, doing a lot of escape and evasion type activities. And within one year, from the time I was at the student center, enjoying a hamburger with my friends in, in college, I was in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a desperate need back then for lieutenants, especially uh, uh, infantry. By then, I was a first lieutenant, and um, uh, I found myself in Vietnam. Uh, I was assigned to the 101st Airborne uh, up in I-Corps. Uh, South Vietnam was divided into four different corps, with I-Corps being the one just south of the DMC down to Da Nang. Uh, the 101st Airborne was located at Camp Eagle, uh, about midway in the middle of that, uh, that corps along Highway 1. And our job was to work west toward the Ashall Valley. Mm. As an infantry platoon leader, 
We were assigned search and destroy missions. My first platoon, I had uh, initially about 36 uh, soldiers. It, it would run anywhere from 35 to 40, depending on who was going home, who was coming in, and that kind of thing. You know, initially, uh, you're the lieutenant, they're the soldiers, uh, you're their boss, but you also have to build a team, and they become like family. And as a lieutenant, you kind of become that father figure for that family. And uh, back in the United States in, in 1970, we'd gone through a lot. Demonstrations in the street, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated, Johnson decided not to run, Nixon came in, etc. We were looking for ways to leave Vietnam, but leave with honor. But we still had some fighting troops, i.e. the 101st Airborne, among others. And um, so when I arrived and was assigned my platoon, uh, I told them, uh, we're going to do our job. We're going to do the search and destroy. We're going to find the enemy. We're going to identify the enemy. But we're not going to try to engage in their rifle pointing at you or you're pointing your rifle at them. We've got machines. We've got Cobras. We've got helicopters. We've got other gunships. We've got the Air Force. We've got the Navy, uh, etc. Let's try to never get into a situation while we're doing our job where I'm looking down a rifle at a guy who's looking down a rifle toward me. We were very successful doing that until February. February 27th, uh, I lost my first man, mm. a kid named uh, Zebanu Calanti, Huntington Beach, California. Mm. He had just turned 21 years old of age. And I get sentimental or a little emotional when I start thinking about it because, in a sense, that was a failure. My job was to get them back home. And we'd had several that had been injured with leg injuries, arm injuries, etc. But he was the first uh, soldier that, that I lost. The jungle um, is a bad place. Uh, we, it had been sprayed with Agent Orange, among others, to defoliate so that hopefully you could see the bad guys, you know. And, and that helped, but quite often you were in uh, double or triple canopy, even though it had been sprayed because it grew back so fast. And the Ashaw Valley was the site of the Ho Chi Minh Trail that, that came from North Vietnam south, bringing Chinese and Russian uh, materials that supported the, the NVA and as well as the Viet Cong area in Vietnam. And, you know, um, in the evenings, uh, the, the, the NVA would leave their camps and try to dodge American troops and head to the villages there in Vietnam to pick up supplies or to uh, maybe get some medical supplies or whatever if they had injuries, etc. In the case on February 27th, we had been moving through the jungle. It is so hot, we would typically move early in the morning. Then we would set up somewhere in a defensive position and let the heat pass so you're not exhausting your troops day in and day out because you know you're working seven days a week ongoing and uh, that it we had done that that day but unfortunately uh, 
Corporal Delante walked into an NVA patrol and uh, just wiped him out. Not a good scene, not a good scene. Uh, but, you know, uh, he was an outstanding soldier, uh, outstanding individual, and uh, just the wrong place, wrong time. And I know, Marvin, it's terribly hard. I didn't mean no, to put right. you on the spot, but I think so important as we go back to that that era and, and folks, I wound up stateside during uh, 72 and 3 counseling many of the soldiers who came home mm-hmm. uh, and I found myself similar to Marvin just now uh, recounting a story to him that the first young man I counseled was 19 years old, private I guess in the Marines and found myself when he left my office crying from the story he told me and here I am thousands of miles away and there's Marvin and his his troops right in the midst of this and these these stories for any of you all who who think that there is not an effect all these years later after Vietnam uh, unfortunately you're wrong you're right, uh, th- you're this, exactly right. this is something that's with you the memory bank keeps it uh, Marvin had a a uh, job and a role, and, and family is the key. And, and the one motto that, that uh, is used by any, any military person is you just never leave someone behind. Exactly. And, and it's just so tough. And then, then when you do that, and then Marvin and I were talking, and I want him to take us through as well, because back in that era, for us physicians stateside, there was no such term as PTSD, uh, post-traumatic, you know, depression. Uh, and, and take us through that, Marvin, how, uh, as you're dealing with your soldiers daily and how, what ways, if possible, to reduce the anxiety of being on watch every single moment of every single day. Is there, was there a way to reduce some of that at all, you know, that you could feel? Well, while we were in the jungle, we would try to do things that that uh, would relieve some of the tension. Uh, but it's very difficult to do, uh, especially in an infantry unit that's out there. We would sometimes we'd stay out in the jungle uh, twenty to thirty days, then rotate back to a fire base for a week or two to give some guys relief, let them take care of injuries, fix their equipment, that kind of thing, and then you'd go back in to the field and then maybe every 60, 90 days come back to the rear area in Fubai or Way and do a three-day resupply where you take your rucksack apart and rebuild it and as if you're ready to go again. So those things helped. And, and the military was, the 101st Airborne, for example, I remember on, in Christmas, on Christmas, or maybe it's Thanksgiving, I can't remember now, but they had these vast resources of helicopters. So they developed a plan to bring every infantry soldier that was possible back to the rear for a Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas, I can't remember which. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we ate, we ate our meal at 10, like 10 o'clock in the morning, but we were so thankful. And for days we'd talk about the food that we'd had back there because in the field you were eating sea rations and then occasionally you'd get the dehydrated, uh, what we call LERPs, uh, long range reconnaissance patrol dehydrated food and I mean that gets old when you eat it three times a day Uh, uh, the coffee those little coffee packages (laughs) you try to make 
was terrible. I, I became very fond of hot chocolate uh, <laughs> because the coffee was so bad. They'd have these little packages of, oh. of chocolate and mix it with water and, and make, make hot, hot chocolate. Uh, you do some, some of those kind of things, but in, in reality, you can't really, you're always on guard. Uh, you know, and, and at the same time, there's a lot of family good things that happen. Uh, I've told a story before about, I had a kid named Weaver from West Virginia. Weaver was a phenomenal individual, just a phenomenal soldier. He was a can-do kind of guy. No matter what you wanted, Weaver could do it. If you needed to make a prepare an LZ, a landing zone for a helicopter, and you were in the jungle, he loved to blow things up. He would take Claymore mines and take the, the the plastic explosive out of them and wrap it around tree and this tree and that tree and uh, you know and and he'd come over. And my nickname was Colonel. I said Colonel, I'm gonna show you. Let me show you. That tree's gonna fall this way. That tree's gonna fall that way. That kind of thing. And he would blow it up. And sure enough. But he had done that quite a bit back in, he'd actually worked some in the coal mines back in West Virginia, so he knew explosives. Weaver also liked to work, walk, he liked to walk point when we're moving. The first man in line, and of course, you know, that is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous position. But Weaver liked that. He enjoyed being that person. Everybody relied on the point man. And uh, we were in, uh, I don't remember whether it was double or triple canopy. Uh, I could see the man in front, in front of me, and I could see the soldier that was carrying my radio telephone, uh, my radio telephone operator, behind me. And I usually walked in the third or fourth position from the point man. So you could have time to react and call in artillery, call in a gunship or whatever, if something happened. We stopped. I punched the guy in front of me. What is it? What is it? What's going on? I don't know. Find out. So he, <laughs> you know, we're doing, we're practicing our noise discipline. Yeah. And time marches on, seems like forever. And finally, I say, tell Weaver to come back here. Only I probably added a few expletives in there. <laughs> and uh, Weaver comes back and I'm looking at him, his face, he, the blood is just drained from his face. And Weaver, what is it? He said, Colonel, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. I said, what do you mean I won't believe it? What is it? He said, you're not going to believe it. I said, Weaver, what is it? He said, I saw a tiger. I was, there was a tiger walking straight toward me. And I said, Weaver, why didn't you shoot him? He said, I didn't want to give away our position. I said, Weaver, the tiger knows where we are. <laughs> Oh, well, so there were some good times, oh, uh, and you know, uh, that night I don't think we yeah. slept because that tiger did indeed know who we were and was oh. in the AO, for the area of oh, operations. Yeah. So uh, uh, oh. you think back on those, and you know, <laughs> it was scary, but at the same time, you wouldn't take a million dollars for that memory. You know? Oh my goodness! And I could, you know, there are a lot of little stories like that 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 With happened. Tiger, yeah. Oh my gosh, and the. Segwaying again, that's a great story. Agent Orange and, and the exposure, and, and certainly I've had other friends came back with exposure. Give the uh, listeners uh, some of the common symptoms that folks were suffering from Agent Orange, not just then, but today as they go through the system. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've been back from Vietnam uh, uh, 50, 51 years. And when I talk to other Vietnam veterans, heart disease, attack on organs, uh, pancreatic cancer, all kinds of cancers, uh, prostate cancer. Uh, you know, when you compare these cancers and other diseases with their peers that did not serve in Vietnam, it's always statistically uh, stronger uh, and much higher for those that did serve. And, um, you know, the federal government finally got around to passing an Agent Orange law, in my judgment, 40 years too late. But, um, and they now have presumed diseases that if you get prostate cancer, as an example, or if you get a certain heart disease or a certain cancer, uh, it is presumed to have been caused by Agent Orange. So that's, that's helpful. But unfortunately, there's a whole uh, group of Vietnam veterans who may not fit that presumed, but also have cancers that yet have not, have not been added to the law or have other issues. I had a very, very good friend, my best friend in high school, that developed pancreatic cancer. And at my encouragement, time and time again, I encouraged him to go to the VA. So he went to the VA, and the first question they asked him is, what day did you get pancreatic cancer? What were you doing when you got pancreatic cancer? And he shook his head and turned around and walked out. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that unfortunately over the last, I'll say the last 40 years, now the last, in recent years, in the last few years, it's gotten better. It's still not where it needs to be. But can you imagine asking, asking a soldier who served in Vietnam what day did you yeah. get pancreatic cancer? And what were you doing? And their forms, the forms they have even today, still ask, what activity were you doing the day that you contracted A or B mm -hmm. or C? Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, I will say in the last, I'll say decade, it's been less than a decade, the VA has gotten better. But, but, the way the Vietnam veterans came home, the way they were treated is a national disgrace. Amen. It's a national disgrace. Every one of us should be ashamed of ourselves. If you're going to send men and women to war, you need to be prepared to welcome them home and to care for them with war-related injuries, including PTSD. Because just because they came home doesn't mean that they didn't bring that with them because they carry things with them. I remember uh, coming back from Vietnam in, uh, I believe it was September of 1971. And uh, my wife had gone back to school, was finishing her, had actually finished her degree and was teaching there in Johnson City, Town Acres Elementary School in Johnson City. And uh, she was so happy, you know, we were coming home. And uh, so she put together a little party first evening at our house and uh, we had two other couples there and we're sitting there uh, uh, you know talking and they had not served and 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 I was totally void of any of the issues they were talking about that had happened during the last year because the news in Vietnam about what's going on in the states uh, uh, you, you just don't hear and um, Kathy had leased this house and it was kind of on a hill 
uh, Mary Wood Drive, if I remember the address. And um, so we're sitting there drinking a beer and maybe eating pizza or something, whatever. And, um, and a car backfires. Now keep in mind, I had been in the jungle within the last seven days before I got there. And when that car backfired, your natural reaction is when artillery or hand grenade or whatever goes off is you hit the ground. So I leaped off the couch and fell across the coffee table. It broke the coffee table to the floor. Mm. Yeah, I'm embarrassed. They're all laughing their butts off because they didn't understand. Yeah. I'm embarrassed and I just want to I want to crawl under the floor, you know, kind of thing. But when you've been in that kind of situation and then come home, you know, the military at that time was in a bad place. Much better today. Much, much, much better today. But you would come home and within hours you were out processed. Yeah. I came into SeaTac in the, in north, in the northwestern part of the country, Seattle, Tacoma and immediately begin booking a plane to come to Johnson City Tennessee. And you just go back just a few hours before, or a few days in this case, because of time and distance. Um, there was no adjustment. There was no counseling. There was nothing. Uh, there was no, no one meeting at the airport other than Kathy and Beth was there to pick me up and say hello and give me a hug, and man, that was great. And then went home, and that evening she had the party. And now, you know, we go back to World War II, and uh, the way our soldiers were brought home is the way to do it. Even in Korea, to a lesser extent. But when Vietnam came home, we were blamed. So often the Vietnam veteran was blamed for the war. Yeah. They didn't start the war. Our politicians yeah. decided to go. They did what their country needed them to do. When the, when, the, when the call went out, they served. And instead of being grateful for their service, we blamed so many of the Vietnam vets. And so many of the Vietnam vets would not express themselves, wouldn't even wear anything associated with the Vietnam War for years. So I decided when I retired that I was going to try to go back to my hometown and work with some of the Vietnam vets, uh, volunteer. And I learned about the Vietnam Veterans of America, and we created a chapter there in La Folla, Chapter 1148. It's the fastest growing chapter in the United States in its wow. population category for a small town. We started, uh, Shelley, with an all-class reunion for the high school that consolidated high school, so this would have been closed where I'd gone to. And uh, we invited all veterans that had served in the Vietnam era to meet for coffee and donuts on a Saturday morning and put together a ticker tape parade. And we had those veterans walking down Main Street there in the Father Central Avenue. And we had these guns that fire the, the, you know, the confetti and that kind of thing. And we had music being played, military music and that kind of thing. We had people there throwing confetti at them and welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. We had veterans, literally, now this is 50 some years later, big tears, mm -hmm. big tears running down their face. And we decided we're gonna 
We're going to do something about that. So in June a year ago, we started the little Vietnam veterans chapter there with 15 members. And today we're up to 91. Wow. A year later. And, this, and, and Vietnam veterans are not joiners. I mean, it takes some work to get them involved in, in, in what we're doing there. That's awesome. And one of the good things that, uh, you know, we are, we are helping them, some of them, with their claims. Because some yeah. of them have the PTSD we talked about. Some of them have effects of Agent Orange. And some of them just have effects with, for example, in the 101st Airborne, you did a lot of combat assaults. You're riding in a helicopter. The helicopter comes in to land. It really doesn't land. It stays about two to three feet off the ground. You hop out. You've got a 75-pound rucksack on your back. And the impact on hips, knees, uh, ankles, shoulders, you know, sometimes it takes years uh, to really feel the effects of that. So we're trying to help them. As a matter of fact, I know this is for Veterans Day, but tomorrow night I'm taking 61 members on the uh, riverboat there in uh, Knoxville for a dinner cruise, hmm. that kind of thing. So we're trying to do those kind of activities that that, that uh, help them feel appreciated, respected, recognized, and appreciated. Absolutely. That's perfect, Marlon. That, that was the biggest thing that hit me as a, as a uh, you know, young fellow in the Air Force and, and watching this, the response when you all came back. One of the most horrible type treatments, knowing, as you pointed out, World War II history, even the Korean conflict, and, and folks, even those of us in the medical corps, uh, were were called names if we were out in uniform on a public street in a large city sometimes. Exactly. It just really, you know, uh, confused us. And then when when the war finally was over and, and then the soldiers coming back, one of the most, uh, most horrible times in the country. And that's amazing how you're helping now going back to do that. And, and uh, I think... You know, what we did uh, a few years ago, friends of, of mine, and Marvin knows them, uh, Spate Bird, Tim mm-hmm. Frazier, Pam Thigpen, uh, and, and I and our, our spouses uh, put together a CD many years later, many, many moons later, to honor the Vietnam veterans. And I'm sorry we didn't do it earlier, but pass that out free around the country and what you said about the big tears just grabbed me. The Veterans Day services here locally and mm-hmm. elsewhere. Oh my goodness, I would hear from Gold Star Mothers and for our listeners, those are uh, moms who have lost uh, soldiers uh, in a combat zone and just just uh, an unbelievable outpouring. And, uh, and so what I've done and what others do like Marvin, always, always do the best you can yeah, for absolutely. any veteran from any conflict, and always, if someone's in uniform, folks, go up, shake their hand, thank them for their service, uh, no matter what the circumstances. And uh, that's all that somebody just really needs sometime, despite these these other situations, just to say thanks. That, yeah, if you yeah. see an old veteran with a cap on, oh yeah, you know, uh, go over, and he may be hobbling around today, yeah. But 50 years ago, he was a fighting machine. That's right. He was a fighting machine, and everybody likes to be patted on the back. 
Yes. And to be told that you did a good job and thank you for your service. Thank you for helping keep us free because we are the greatest nation on earth and there's every reason in the world. Uh, you know, the sad part today is that we're seeing fewer and fewer people volunteer for our military. And I know it's a different world today. A lot of it's done by machines, by drones, by uh, unmanned aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. But it still requires men and women dedicated to protecting this country. And Absolutely. I've been working some with the Medal of Honor uh, Heritage Center down in Chattanooga. What they're trying to do there is to instill those common characteristics uh, that most Medal of Honor recipients have in our high school and our middle school kids. Integrity, patriotism, uh, courage, etc. Uh, just recently they had, they sponsored a celebration of valor luncheon down in Chattanooga and had uh, uh, one of the recipients of the Medal of Honor there, uh, Sergeant Leroy Petrie, and uh, beautiful job. And uh, about three weeks ago, Captain Larry Taylor from Chattanooga received the Medal of Honor. Uh, he, he initially had uh, received a uh, Silver Star for his action in Vietnam. There was this LERP team, four men. They're out there doing their thing, long-range reconnaissance patrol, and they got surrounded. They're out of ammo. They're out of food. They're out of everything. And they call for, for rescue, and helicopters were, no, were not in close proximity. Captain Larry Taylor flew a Cobra helicopter. A Cobra helicopter is a two-person, you have the pilot and a gunner. Mm. There are no passengers. It's, it's a gunship. And when he learned that no rescue helicopters were available, he did something that had never been done before and probably will never be done again. He fired up the area with what ammo he had left on his uh, Cobra set the cobra down between the bad guys on one side and the men. And four men grabbed hold of the skids of that helicopter and grabbed hold of the gun pods and held on for their, for their life as he flew them out of there dangling from a cobra helicopter. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Larry Taylor lives in Chattanooga. Unfortunately, he's suffering with cancer but what a hero. Oh, wow. And one of the gentlemen that he flew out is a kid named Dave Hill. Dave Hill was a ranger. Uh, Dave was there, and I had the opportunity to sit with him and talk to him. And he says, somewhere in the world, there's an old Cobra helicopter. And I promise you, my fingerprints, my scratch marks <laughs> are, are embossed or engraved in that helicopter as I was holding on for oh. Dear life, and the story he told, uh, and he helped work on uh, work with the military in preparing the nomination that President Biden just uh, just presented uh, the Medal of Honor to Captain Larry Taylor. Wow! So I really enjoyed it. And people in this area, as well as outside the area, if, if you're anywhere close to Chattanooga, you need to visit, visit the Medal of Honor Heritage Center. Absolutely. It is a story that Veterans Day is a perfect day to go there. Go there and learn the story of what ordinary people, ordinary men and women, there's only one woman in history that's received the Medal of Honor, but in this case, ordinary men have done extraordinary things when called upon. Absolutely. They don't plan to do it. It's just something you've got to do. And going back to your comment about no man left behind, 
Larry Taylor was not going to fly out of there and leave those four rangers behind. So he invented a way of rescuing, and thank God they were able to hold on, and he flew them out of there. That's an unbelievable story. And and typical, folks, uh, as you're listening, as Marvin points out, just the bravery under fire, as we say, uh, the ingenuity, the inspiration, the dedication to your fellow soldier in the midst of, of very, very dire circumstances. And, and uh, wouldn't it be great if that happened not just in war, but in so many other things? Absolutely. Because those everyday heroes are among us, and we know that. Uh, but Marvin, just a great, great time to have you with me. And I wish we had a little more time, but as I say a lot of times, you can come back. doesn't have to be a Veterans Day, but these, these stories and these remarkable experiences that someone like you have had. And uh, is there anything you'd like to wrap up with today? Any comment to the listeners? Well, I appreciate, appreciate your, the opportunity to be here, and thank you again for your service and for your not, not just in the military, but your service to the community. I remember your years on the school board and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I think people should get involved. And, you know, whether it, you don't have to be in the military to get involved. Uh, there's a lot of th- ways to serve this country and make this country a better place uh, by serving. But if you do see an old veteran out there hobbling around somewhere, go over and pat him on the back and maybe buy him a cup of coffee or something that... Uh, that just expresses your gratitude for the opportunity to, to live in the greatest country on earth. Well, and I appreciate that. And folks, I will echo what Marvin just said. There's nothing better than just sitting and, and uh, listening to him. It's happened to me a number of times over my uh, post-military career to just visit with veterans and get their stories. And, and uh, it's been great to have you with us, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. And folks... If you have any questions, comments, feel free to, uh, as I say each episode, send them to me at shellgriff at gmail.com. I can get back with Marvin and answer a future episode. But please, on this Veterans Day, do what he's suggesting. If you can, uh, if you live in our area, go see that, that wonderful uh, entity down there in Chattanooga. Or, as I say, take a veteran to lunch, supper, whatever, uh, just to spend time with those who have taken such good care of us over so, so many generations. And as I always say, I hope you have a safe and healthy day, and I'll see you a little further up the road.